Hey everyone, this is Josh with Spurgeon Maniacs to share how you guys can partner with us. First off, thank you to everyone who has been listening to our show and to those of you that came to our conference. We are gearing up to expand what we do for you guys, but we need your help. Go on over to patreon.com forward slash Spurgeon Maniacs. We would love to have your support to continue doing this podcast, conferences, and so much more as we grow. Also, give this podcast a five-star review on Apple or Google Podcasts. That's how more and more people are going to find what we're doing over here. Lastly, come find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and don't forget to email us at podcast at SpurgeonManiacs.com. Now, here is your episode. Charles Spurgeon was a man that God used, and millions are still being impacted by his kingdom work. As we examine his life and ministry, we hope to strengthen today's church and bring glory to Christ. My name is Joel Littlefield, lead pastor of New City Church in Bath, Maine, and I'm joined by my brother in Christ, Josh Whitney. Welcome to the Spurgeon Maniacs podcast. This is Josh and uh, only Josh right now. If you've been on our Facebook page, you have seen how we are very busy. We, you know, I have the residency training as well as my full-time job. Joel is a full-time pastor and one of the elders at our church. Sometimes the busyness just gets a little too busy. So in lieu of an awesome podcast that you would usually get from the two of us, we are pulling from our conference that we did back in May. This year is going to be session two of Jeffrey Chang. And I might be asking, Josh, what about session one? Well, that is already on our YouTube channel. So if you didn't know we had a YouTube channel, this would be a perfect time for you to go over to our YouTube channel, Spurgeon Maniacs, link in the show notes see Dr. Renahan's session that he did one of two so here is going to be Dr. Shang's session and that is titled Spurgeon and his elders it was an amazing session so I'm really glad to be able to put it on here for you guys so with that being said sit back miss our wonderful banter and enjoy Dr. Jeffrey Chang's first session Spurgeon and his elders. So good to be with you uh, this morning. Once again, thank you for coming out. Uh, Let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, through our time together, uh, equip these brothers and sisters to serve your church Uh, Lord, that the result would be that your people would be strengthened in in, in faithfulness to your word uh, and in uh, a confidence in the power of the gospel to change lives. So, Lord, be with us. uh, Cause this 
talk, this material to be helpful and encouraging uh, for those here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> the big idea that I want to kind of convey to you uh, with my next two talks uh, is the idea that one pastor uh, is not sufficient to do the work of the church. <laughs> one pastor cannot do the work of the church all by himself. That, that's the big idea I really want to convey to you. You know, th there's so many wonderful stories when it comes to Spurgeon's ministry uh, stories of amazing conversions that take place under his preaching. My favorite one is the time when he's getting ready to preach at the Crystal Palace. He's preaching before a crowd of 23,000 people, and he's preaching there for the first time. He's testing the acoustics of the building, and he stands at the pulpit, declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, there is a worker up in the rafters, just like working working away, doing his thing, he hears this voice coming out of nowhere that says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all of a sudden, he's like smitten to his heart, convicted of his sins, goes home, repents, and later is, uh, is saved, trusts in Christ, which I always think, you know, never underestimate the importance of a good sound check. Right? The, <laughs> the Lord can use that. Um, <clears throat> you know, there, there are just so many wonderful stories like that. I mean, something remarkable was happening during Spurgeon's day uh, under his ministry. Uh, and yet, as, as sort of as fun and amazing as these stories are, they can leave us with the impression that, you know, of the thousands that joined the Metropolitan Tabernacle, that they all came under his own solitary efforts, right? Under his kind of remarkable giftedness. And that's just not the case. Um, <clears throat> Spurgeon himself said, uh, well, what I want us to think about is how the role that his elders played in his ministry in this talk, and then my second talk, the role that his congregation played in his ministry. Uh, when it came to his elders, Spurgeon said this, it would have been utterly impossible for that church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, to have existed except as a mere sham and a huge pretense if it had not been for the scriptural and most expedient office of the eldership. Right? If not for the office of the eldership, this church would have been a sham, would have been just a, a fake, right? not a real church. Uh, and so Spurgeon understood he needed elders alongside him. Um, so we want to think about uh, the, the role of the eldership in Spurgeon's ministry. When Spurgeon first arrived, uh, at the New Park Street Chapel when he first preached there in 1853, uh, just sort of as a, doing pulpit supply. Uh, there were just a few dozen in attendance. Uh, there were four deacons serving the church. Uh, the church was not doing well. Uh, the deacons had just written their 1853 annual report to the Baptist Union, and they reported no additions to our numbers in consequence of our being without a pastor. Uh, so they had been without a pastor for a number of years now. The church was not growing uh, the letter concluded, Brethren, please pray for us. Well, if there, were any, if there was anybody praying for the ministry there at the New Park Street Chapel, uh, the Lord answered their prayers. Uh, because by the following spring, the church would call this young 19-year-old, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, to serve as their pastor. And, and right away, the crowds began to come. But more than just an increase in, in attendance and crowds, uh, the church was seeing people converted. 
uh, under the preaching of the gospel. Uh, these people were then being baptized. They were joining the church, which means that as the, the membership then began to grow, uh, Spurgeon and the deacons pastoral workload also began to grow. There, there, there were more membership interviews to conduct, more people to pastor, new believers to disciple, ministries to organize. And of course, there was always the problem of space. Really, very quickly, they began to outgrow uh, the, the auditorium there, which seated about a 1,000. Uh, before the age of safety codes uh, and proper ventilation, uh, people just crammed into every available space. They were sitting in the aisles, crowding in the windows. The, the building grew dangerously crowded. Uh, in 1856, Spurgeon led the church into calling two men to serve, two new men to serve as deacons, uh, but that hardly met the challenge of growth. Uh, at that time, 1856, he just came on in 1854 with a few dozen in attendance. By 1856, membership was at 595. Uh, by January 1857, membership had grown to 860, and a year later, membership reached 1,046, so, so by 1859. So in, in, in less than kind of four years, the membership of the church had tripled. And uh, amid all of those administrative challenges and pastoral challenges, the deacons are now beginning to organize plans for building a new building that could see over 5,000, because there were just, again, thousands coming to hear Spurgeon. In all of this, the deacons were swamped. Spurgeon was overworked. He was beginning to get sick, and something needed to change. Otherwise, Spurgeon would not survive uh, what was going on. And he looked at, the, at these crowds, the, these buildings that could not hold the people that wanted to listen. Even more than that, he looked at his own congregation, the members of his church, and wondered, like, how can I adequately pastor all these hundreds of people. Uh, he, he wondered, even for a time, should I just become an itinerant preacher, just be done with uh, pastoral ministry, and just be a, a traveling evangelist, right? Um, but as he looked at his situation, he discovered that the solution to, his, to all these challenges lay in the New Testament. Uh, it lay in the office of elders. And so that's kind of the first lesson, the first takeaway here. Uh, you you can't pastor the church alone, right? God's design for the church is that there would be a plurality of elders working together in the ministry of the church. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the church at the time held to the Second London Baptist Confession, uh, 1689, which states that a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, are bishops or elders and deacons. So it, it lists bishops and elders there in the plurality, right? Uh, from its earliest days under Benjamin Keach, the church had a plurality of elders serving alongside the pastor. Uh, but in, in later years, Baptist churches began to move away from that sort of structure now, in part due to their rejection of Presby the Presbyterian model of creating kind of teaching elders and ruling elders. Uh, but there are perhaps other factors also. By the time you get to Spurgeon's day, uh, most Baptist churches, including the New Park Street Chapel, had one pastor uh, functioning as a solo kind of elder alongside a, a board of deacons or a group of deacons. So Spurgeon had inherited that sort of structure, uh, and he needed help. Uh, and, and there's no question that he needed help. 
uh, one could think of his desire to implement a plurality of elders as being just purely pragmatic. But as Spurgeon looked at the New Testament, he became convinced that the scriptural pattern uh, was for churches to be led by a plurality of elders. So he, he says this, When I came to New Park Street, the church had deacons but no elders. And I thought from my study of the New Testament that there should be both orders of officers. They are very useful when we can get them. The deacons to attend to all secular matters and the elders to devote themselves to the spiritual part of the work. This division of labor supplies an outlet for two different sorts of talent and allows two kinds of men to be serviceable to the church. And I am sure that it is good to have two sets of brethren as officers instead of one set who have to do everything and who often become masters of the church instead of the servants, as both deacons and elders should be. So, so how did Spurgeon begin to kind of make this transition then to appointing elders in his church? Well, uh, the most important thing that he did was he just began to teach uh, on this topic. Uh, he, he didn't quite preach a topical sermon calling for the church to appoint elders, but instead as he preached kind of week by week, uh, he just looked for opportunities in, kind of in the course of ministry to talk about what we see in the New Testament uh, in, in terms of elders. Uh, so, for example, Spurgeon would pick scripture readings in the service that would contain references to elders in the church, and he would just expound on those when he had the chance. He says this, As there were no elders at New Park Street, when I read and expounded the passages in the New Testament referring to elders, I used to say, Well, this is an order of Christian workers which appears to have dropped out of existence. In apostolic times, they had both deacons and elders. Uh, but somehow the church has departed from this early custom. We have one preaching elder, that is the pastor, and he is expected to perform all the duties of the eldership. So and on other occasions, when he's preaching through a sermon, he would often look for ways to make application points about elders. So for example, in 1857, he's preaching on uh, Jesus' command to Peter to feed my sheep. And he says this, there are more than a hundred young people in this church who positively, though they are members, ought not to be left alone. But some of our elders, if we have elders, and some who ought to be ordained elders, should make it their business to teach them further and to instruct them in the faith and so keep them hard and fast by the truth of Jesus Christ. If we had elders as they had in all the apostolic churches, this might in some degree be attended to. But now the hands of our deacons are full. They, they do much of the work of the eldership. And they cannot do any more than they are already doing, for they are toiling hard already. So I, I just appreciate here, uh, amid all of the administrative burdens, Spurgeon's concern here was pastoral. There, there were all these young Christians joining the church, and, and yet nobody to kind of disciple them and watch over them, make sure that they're growing in the faith. Uh, the pastor and the deacons had their hands full, and it grieved Spurgeon to see all these young Christians young believers not being discipled. And so he, he believed the solution lay with having elders, right, to be able to do that pastoral work in the church. And yet even while he taught, he wasn't sort of just telling people to wait passively until elders were appointed, but he was trying to urge people to you know, go ahead and step up if, if you're able, right? Uh, some of our elders, if we have elders, you know, even before you're recognized as elder, do that work if you can, uh, coming alongside these young men, and discipling them. Well, over time, this teaching, as you can imagine, it just began to take root. Uh, members of the church actually began to see that, that the office of elders could be really useful for the health of the church. 
he says this, one and another of the members began to inquire of me, ought not we as a church to have elders? Cannot we elect some of our brethren who are qualified to fill the office? I answered that we had better not disturb the existing state of affairs. But some enthusiastic young men said that they would propose at the church meeting that elders should be appointed. You know, Spurgeon, I think he was being kind of coy here. He wanted elders, but he's also wanting to be patient, uh, wanting to uh, make sure that the congregation, the congregation was ready for that change. You know, this, this would have been quite unusual among the Baptist churches in, in his day for there to be a plurality of elders. Like I said, that was more associated with Presbyterianism or, or even Congregationalism than, than with the Baptists. So it would have been kind of a, a significant departure from common practice of Baptist churches. So he, he was trying to be patient in this, uh, and yet he was teaching on it clearly. And over time, people became convinced. They saw a plurality of elders clearly taught in Scripture. Uh, and so finally, on January 12, 1859, when you read the church meeting minutes, uh, you see the following motion. Our pastor, in accordance with a previous notice, then stated the necessity that had long been felt by the church for the appointment of certain brethren to the office of elders to watch over the spiritual affairs of the church. Our pastor pointed out the scripture warrant for such an office and quoted several passages relating to the ordaining of elders, Titus 1, Acts 14, the qualifications of elders, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, the duties of elders, Acts 20, 1 Timothy 5, James 5, and other mention made of elders, Acts 11, 15, 6, 1 Timothy 4. Whereupon it was resolved that the church, having heard the statements made by the pastor respecting the office of the eldership, desires to elect a certain number of brethren to serve the church in that office for one year, it being understood that they are to attend to the spiritual affairs of the church and not to the temporal matters which appertain to the deacon only. And so the office is created uh, by a congregational vote, and then uh, they proceed to elect unanimously nine men to serve as elders, while allowing for the deacons to also continuing to serve in some spiritual capacity also during a time of transition. Uh, and over time, the elder board would grow, the deacon board would grow, and there would be a more clear kind of division of labor between the elders and the deacons. Uh, and it's this kind of structure, you know, elders, a plurality of elders taking care of the spiritual needs of the church, deacons with the administration of the church, Spurgeon being the, the main preaching pastor, uh, this structure kind of enabled the church to face the tremendous growth in membership uh, and the ministry that would come in the next 30 years. Uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of wise reasons for having a plurality of elders. It, it diversifies the wisdom and experience of the pastors of the church. Uh, it, it provides stability to the leader of the church so that the leadership of the church is not dependent on, on who you can pay, right? But there are laymen serving in that capacity. It, it balances out the weaknesses of that senior pastor, of that main preaching guy, right? Uh, and it allows kind of the pastors to share the workload in the work of the church. I mean, there's so many kind of practical benefits to, the, to a plurality of elders. Uh, but behind all those kind of practical reasons is the simple fact that this is just what we see modeled in the New Testament. Um, the, the apostles didn't just evangelize, but they planted churches. And they didn't just plant churches, but they uh, sought to mature and strengthen those churches. Uh, and they established a kind of order and structure to those churches. And one of the things that we see in that structure and order is 
uh, again, multiple men serving as elders of the church. As Paul writes in Titus 1, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, part of the way the ministry that Paul had started there in Crete would be strengthened to last beyond this time would be that churches in every town would have elders uh, and so would be equipped to teach sound doctrine and model good works for their people. So uh, no matter how gifted you are as a, as a preacher, you know, if Spurgeon needed elders alongside him, as gifted as he was, uh, was, surely we do also, right, for those of us serving in pastoral ministry. So, so if, if you don't have qualified men to serve as elders around you, uh, pray, right? Begin praying, asking the Lord Jesus Christ to give good gifts of, of, of qualified men to serve your church. Uh, begin to teach on the, the office of elders. You know, it's there in the New Testament uh, for us to teach on, right? Uh, begin teaching your people on what it is. Give your people a, a vision for the high calling of eldership. And, and make it a matter of congregational prayer. Like if you, if, for your weekly prayer meeting, let that be sort of a regular prayer item let that the Lord will raise up uh, gifted men out of this congregation. You know, if, if you are a solo pastor, more than hiring a church administrator or, or a children's ministry director uh, or a worship pastor, what you need even more than those things are qualified men serving alongside you as elders. Because that's the structure that we see in the New Testament. Right, more than the other kind of more modern positions that we tend to make up. All right, lesson number two, then uh, let's talk about the work of an elder, right? Uh, the work of shepherding the flock of God. Um, <clears throat> with a plurality of elders in place, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, at that time, the New Park Street Chapel, uh, they would be positioned not to become a, a preaching station, but to be a church. Uh, a membership would be more than just names on the roll. No, it would be the commitment of a group of elders to watch over that flock, uh, feeding them from the word and guarding them spiritually. So going forward, then, one of Spurgeon's most important pastoral responsibilities uh, was in leading the elders and ensuring uh, that there were always kind of enough elders to serve alongside him, that there were enough elders to give care to that huge flock. Um, the elders were the ones who considered potential, considered potential elder candidates, and uh, they would always discuss, like, who are the men you see in the congregation who are serving in, in elder-like ways, who are exhibiting the kinds of gifts that we are looking for in an elder. And uh, as they discussed different names, uh, certainly a few names would rise to the top. And Spurgeon would always take the lead in having the conversation with these men about serving as elders. We have a letter in the Spurgeon Library collection where Spurgeon is, is reporting back on six such conversations uh, on, on men that he talked to in the church about serving as elders. So I'll read the letter here. <clears throat> Dear friends, referring to his own elders, in reference to the brothers whom I was to see about the eldership, I have to report as follows. Brother Bantick is very grateful for the good opinion of the brethren and would gladly do all in his power but business so occupies him that he cannot fulfill the duties of the office and therefore declines. Brother Hales had a stroke of paralysis on the brain a few days ago and therefore cannot be expected to undertake the work. Brother S. Johnson cannot take Wednesday evening work as it is his class night, 
But in any other way, he will act with us, and I believe he will be a most efficient worker. We may heartily recommend him to the church. Brother Stubbs can undertake the work and is quite willing to do so. He will, I trust, prove to be a helpful brother. Brother Woolacott, in the kindest manner, declines on account of the distance at which he resides and his business engagements. And Brother Wigney, to my great regret, feels that his class demands all his time and that he could not fulfill elders' duties. We have these, dear brothers. We need to look around again. Yours ever truly, C.H. Spurgeon. So just a few things stand out to me about this letter. Uh, first, the, these men understood that the eldership was a high calling. Um, they, they knew that it was a stewardship. They weren't, they weren't looking to overcommit themselves, like com- saying, okay, I can do it, and then like fall short of that. You know, they took it seriously. Uh, if anything, it seems like Spurgeon was kind of urging them to take it on, uh, but they were reluctant right, in some ways, just, again, because they knew it was hard work. Um, so, you know, it, it strikes me, as, as exciting as it is to think about, wow, how cool it would be to serve as an elder alongside Spurgeon. Uh, the truth is, past all that glamour, pastoral work is hard work. Uh, it's, it, it's not glamorous. It's, it's a stewardship. It's, it's feeding the sheep. It's caring for the sheep. Sheep smell and bite, you know, and, and do all kinds of things that are no fun. Um, I remember the first time serving as an elder, feeling like this palpable pressure on my chest, like physically, uh, just as I felt the, the, the stress and the burden of pastoral care. Uh, and, and that feeling still continues, right, even as I serve as a lay elder. Um, James's warning still applies, right? Not many of you should be teachers, he says. Uh, and I think you see a little bit of that in, in these men's responses. Second, it's clear also that the elders that they were looking for, that they were looking for were men who were already engaged in pastoral work. You know, as far as I know, there was no sort of elder pipeline in the, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where if you sign up for a curriculum here on this end, it spits you out two years later as an elder on the other end. Uh, it's, not, it's not like that. Rather uh, than having a process like that, the idea that we see here is that these were men who were already engaged in the work of the church. They were already very useful, already leading classes. These are Bible classes that I'll talk about later today. Uh, already doing teaching and discipling. So it's not about making elders, but it's about recognizing who is exhibiting the gifts of an elder in the congregation. Uh, and and th- these brothers are doing so even as they are working their normal jobs. You know, that one brother who declined because of his business, uh, they're doing this just kind of on their volunteer capacity. Um, and then finally, we see that Spurgeon understood that he could not do the work alone. He needed elders alongside him. That, that last phrase we have these, dear brother, need to look around again. I mean, Spurgeon, uh, he's encouraged by the two who said yes, but he needs more pulling alongside him, right, to care for the church. Um, I'm just amazed, as busy as Spurgeon was, that he had the time to go talk to six men about serving as elders, right? I mean, this, this mattered to him that much that he would carve out time to, to talk to potential elders, and he saw this as an important part of his pastoral leadership. Uh, James Spurgeon once gave this description of the elders' job at his church. To the elders is committed the spiritual oversight of the church and such of its concerns as are not assigned to the deacons nor belong to the preacher. And and these are the the tasks. The seeing of inquirers, the visiting of candidates for church membership. So those have to do with the membership process. Uh, The seeking out of absentees, 
the caring for the sick and the trouble, the conducting of prayer meetings, catechumen, and Bible classes for the young men. These and other needed offices our brethren, the elders, discharge for the church. So he, he really breaks it up into two, two categories. Uh, the membership process, seeing like those candidates, and then the ongoing pastoral care of the church, you know, helping people to, you know, caring for the sick, caring for the hurting, helping people to grow in their knowledge of the scriptures. Um, so let's think about the elders' work in those two categories. First of all, the elders' work in the membership process. Um, you know, during Spurgeon's ministry, if you, somebody wanted to respond to the gospel, the clearest way they, they would do that would not be by, by raising their hand or signing a card or praying a prayer or going to a special room. Uh, those would be methods that Spurgeon's successors would later adopt. But Spurgeon understood that the biblical way to make a profession of faith was by being baptized and by joining the church. Uh, so if any visitors wanted to respond to the gospel they were pointed to the membership process of the church. And that membership process then itself became kind of an evangelistic ministry of the elders of the church. So in, in Spurgeon's culture and context, there were all kinds of motivations for why somebody would, would want to come forward and be baptized and join the church. Uh, you know, it, it was a matter of kind of social respectability in, in many ways to be a member of a church. So the elders had the responsibility to examine uh, each profession of faith as people came forward for church membership. Uh, those who had a credible profession of faith, they would be joyfully affirmed. And for any who were in some way lacking in their profession of faith, the elders had an opportunity to share the gospel with them, to, to point them to the gospel. So, <clears throat> for example, uh, if you go to the Metab in their archives, you're going to see rows and rows and rows of, of these large folio volumes full of membership interview testimonies, uh, of notes uh, of the elders there, of, of their kind of interviews with church applicants. So here's uh, an interview with James Melbourne. This is what an elder wrote. This good man wishes to join the church because his wife has applied for membership. He has frequently heard Mr. Spurgeon and prefers his preaching to any he ever heard. I don't think he has the faintest idea of the gospel. I suppose he is sober, honest, industrious, and willing to join a church or do anything else which is reputable and respectable. He reads parts of the Bible sometimes and thinks it all very good, but he knows no preference. He does not recollect having ever particularly prayed to God or for anything in his life. I am astonished how any man could sit under our pastor's ministry one Lord's Day and be so entirely ignorant of his own ignorance of the gospel. <laughs> I spoke to him of the new birth and gave him a ticket for Brother Hank's class. So in many ways, like James here, sounds like an ideal church candidate, right? I mean, he comes to church, his wife is joining, he doesn't get drunk, he likes the preaching, he works hard, he's industrious, right? He wants to join. And yet, despite all that, the elder is like talking to him and there's no sense of any kind of spiritual life. No understanding of the gospel and his own need of a savior. So, so if you bring this guy into the church, he's going to be a, a very like polite church member. He might tithe very generously, but you're giving him an assurance of his own salvation that could end up doing him like deadly spiritual harm, right? It, it, could, it could sort of inoculate him from the gospel because you've already affirmed him as a Christian. 
So instead, the elder here wisely sends him to Brother Hank's class where this man can further study the scriptures, right, and hear the gospel and have people come alongside him to teach him and evangelize him. A lot of the testimonies talk about the candidate being turned away, but the Lord using that time as a way to convict them of their pride and their sin. So on one occasion, there was a Harriet Olney, which I think is a daughter of one of the elders. Uh, She applies for membership, and the elder interviewing her writes, was not satisfied with her, tes- with her testimony and could not recommend her. So sends her away. Two years later, she comes back, reapplies for membership, and then the elder records, though much disappointed initially, she now believes it to have been for the best, as she has since then been more fully convinced of her sinfulness. I have seen her twice, and although her knowledge of divine truth is by no means extensive, she knows she is a sinner. She believes that Jesus died for sinners and died for her. Uh, I mean, you, you can just imagine you have an elder's daughter coming forward. She's, she, she's a dutiful, you know, older daughter uh, applying for membership. It's the right thing to do. and wants to please her parents. And, and you can imagine, like, the pressure for that el- interviewing elder to just say, oh, yeah, come on in, join the church, right? No, but instead he, he's trying to discern, is there an understanding of the gospel? Does she, does she understand that Jesus died for her sins? And, and he's not convinced, and therefore the disappointment of being sent away, and yet the Lord uses that to, to actually convict her of her sins and her pride and bring her to her Savior. To be clear, the elders are not requiring some high level of theological knowledge or fluency. Uh, no, rather what they're looking for is a credible profession of faith, right, through a clear understanding of the gospel and evidence, and some evidence of that repentance and faith. Uh, For another applicant, the elder writes, I believe this good brother to be a sincere follower of the Lord Jesus, but he's untaught, being very young in the way. So even though he's letting him into the church, he recognizes he's really young. He needs to be a disciple. So he's going to connect him with another class also in the the process. Um, So so the first step of the membership process was meeting with an elder. And the second step was to actually meet with the pastor, to meet with Spurgeon himself. For the first 15 years of his ministry, Spurgeon met with every candidate for membership, uh, which would have meant thousands of membership interviews. So even while he has a plurality of elders who can split up the work for that first interview, he is that kind of the second interview, um, and he does all of them. Uh, By 1869, his brother James comes on as associate pastor, and he largely takes over the task. But Spurgeon never entirely drops that responsibility So in 1884, he says this, O brothers, on that day on which I lately saw 40 persons one by one and listened to their experience and proposed them to to the church, I felt as weary as ever a man did in reaping the heaviest harvest. I did not merely give them a few words as inquirers, but examined them as candidates with my best judgment. He said, if I had many more days like this, I would die. <laughs> uh, but uh, 40 membership interviews in one day, I mean, that's got to be some kind of Baptist record, right? Come on. Uh, so, uh, you know, as busy as Spurgeon was, again, he did not leave the membership process entirely in his elders' hands, but he worked together with them to, to evaluate these people's profession of faith. And it, this was important enough for there to be built into the membership process at least two elders, uh, interv- like kind of interviewing each applicant, right? It wasn't enough for just one person, but two. 
And before each interview, Spurgeon would get the notes from the elder who did the first interview, and he would read the notes, uh, then make his own assessment based on his meeting with the candidate. Uh, And on the margins of those notes, you can often see Spurgeon's kind of notes. So for one candidate, Spurgeon writes in the margin, This young man's moral character must be seen into with care. He is but a young man, and I fear he has many temptations. I have no reason to suspect, but only advise. For another candidate, he writes this, Another difficult case requiring a diligent investigation. I think delay would be advisable. Um, At times, he was concerned about how to care for them once they joined the church. So for another candidate, he writes this, ought to have the confession of faith, messenger to get her one. So he wanted to make sure that this applicant got a copy of the 1689 so that she could study it to grow in her uh, theology. So, you know, Spurgeon never sort of contradicts his elders' judgments, as far as I can tell. There's never like an elder who approves one candidate, and Spurgeon says, no, absolutely not. He's not joining the church. But he also doesn't hesitate to sort of weigh in and say, oh, we got to be really careful with this one. You know, watch it, have, have the church look into this matter or that matter before we bring them in. Or let's, let's not rush them through. Let's take our time with this applicant. Um, in all this, Spurgeon and his elders understood that the membership interview process was an opportunity to begin pastoring these candidates, even before they joined the church. Um, you know, I don't know how seriously your church practices church membership, but, but you understand that when somebody uh, expresses their desire to join the church, your opportunity to examine their profession of faith is one of the most important things you'll ever do for that person pastorally, right? Because you're, you're seeing if that person understands the gospel and if, if there's evidence of, of repentance and faith in their life. And for you to kind of Give your sort of affirmation. You know, as far as I can tell, brother or sister, you are a believer. Right? What, a, what an important pastoral word that is. Um, that, that you get to, what an important pastoral role that you get to play in that person's life. For those who are coming forward to join your church, like James Melbourne, who have no idea what it means to be a Christian, uh, what an opportunity that is to then be like, okay, you want to join the church? That's wonderful. Let's think about the gospel. Let's make sure we understand uh, what the gospel is. What a, what a prime opportunity for evangelism that is. Um, so, you know, Spurgeon says this, for people who are intimidated at the thought of joining the church, he, he wrote this, So far from wishing to repel you, if you really do love the Savior, we shall be glad enough to welcome you. If, you, cannot see in you, if we cannot see in you the evidence of a great change, we shall kindly point out to you our fears, and we shall be thrice happy to point you to the Savior. But be sure of this. If you have really believed in Jesus, you shall not find the church terrible to you. I, I love that. If you really have believed in Jesus, you shall not find the church terrible to you. Um, and and if, if we can't tell that you're a Christian, we will be happy to point you to the Savior, Spurgeon says. Well, that's, that's the elders and Spurgeon's work there in the membership process. Let me say a word about ongoing pastoral care, what that looked like for the elders. Uh, with so many people joining the church, how do they care for that, for, for you know, at, at the end of his ministry, 5,300 plus members? Um, how do you provide pastoral care for so many people? Uh, a, a couple of things that are, are striking. 
uh, the elders sought to engage in regular pastoral visitation. Um, for the elders' meeting on, in 1876, uh, the minutes record, after which some discussion took place upon the best method of keeping up a constant visitation of the members of the church. The question was opened by Brother Elvin and the pastor, and several brothers took part in it. You know, it's, it's, I don't know if they ever established a pattern for constant visitation of the members of the church, but this was their goal. They had in their mind this picture of elder care being actually visiting your people and knowing what they're going through and hearing and praying with them. Uh, earlier that year when they had that elders meeting, church membership was 4,813, and there were 33 elders. And here they are talking about constant visitation, right? Isn't that amazing? Um, to, to help coordinate this task, the elders divided the church into geographical districts. Certain elders were assigned uh, pastoral responsibility for each district. I, I can't tell from looking at their notes how effective these districts were. Uh, but um, certainly that administrative division of labor provided some coordination, which was helpful, I trust. Um, it's clear reading the elders' meeting minutes that some elders are more hardworking than other, others, right? So it's, it's kind of the typical dynamics that you would face with any elder board. Um, Spurgeon himself did not have a district, uh, but still, as the pastor of the church, he was frequently called on for the more urgent visits. Uh, so Susanna writes this about her husband's Friday night visitations. On the way back from the college, there was often a sick or dying member of the church to whom he had sent word that he would call on. It was utterly impossible for him to make any systematic pastoral visitation of his great flock. That work was undertaken by the elders. But he found many opportunities for visiting his members, and his sermons contained many frequent references to the triumphant deathbed scenes that he had witnessed. So, you know, Spurgeon shared his pastoral responsibility with his elders, uh, and yet there were times when his people did not want one of the elders to come, but one of the senior pastor, right? one of the main preaching guys to come. Uh, so they personally asked for Spurgeon to visit. And as busy as he was, Spurgeon made himself available, right? To, at, even after, at the end of a long week on a Friday night to go on pastoral visits. Uh, and, but then notice how Susanna made, commented how that made him a better preacher because he knew his people. Right. Uh, at my previous church, we one year made a plan to visit every household in the church. So we had something like uh, 250 households. We had about 15 elders. And we just kind of divided it up. And over the year, each elder, um, a different elder visited kind of every household. It took us about two years to do that in the church. Uh, and we were just struck by how much you can learn about someone pastorally by going into their homes, right? When you see their homes, you're like, oh, 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 you're a hoarder. I didn't realize this. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we got a lot to talk about, right? Um, and and when, we, when you go into their homes, like, to have an opportunity, they know you're coming, not just to have idle chit-chat, but actually ask kind of spiritually, pastorally, kind of probing questions, try to find out how they're doing spiritually, pray with them, open the scriptures with them. We had many members of our church to say to us, like, I've been a member here for 20 years, and this is the first time a pastor has ever come right, into my home. And what a privilege it was for us to do that. Uh, second, in addition to pastoral visitation, uh, the elders at the Metab used communion tickets to track 
non-attendance. This, is, this one's a little bit strange. Communion tickets to track non-attendance. So every member, every year, would get a card with 12 tickets kind of perforated, attached to them. Uh, and when you want to take the Lord's Supper, you would tear out one ticket. It'd have a unique number attached, kind of designated to you. And the, 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 the clerks would collect those tickets and track uh, which members were showing up at the communion each month. Uh, and <clears throat> every elders meeting, they would get a report of members who had not been to communion for more than three months. And so most of the discussion at elders meetings then were then discussing these non-attenders and following up, uh, trying to find out what's going on. Why haven't they attended? Are they doing okay? Let's assign this brother to go check in on that member who hasn't been to church for three months or hasn't taken the Lord's Supper for three months and, and figure out if, if there's more that needs to be done. Uh, Spurgeon encouraged his elders to use these visits, again, as an opportunity for pastoral care. Uh, a pastor once asked Spurgeon if he would ever, ever recommend a rule for dealing with non-attenders. For example, if somebody doesn't attend for six months, remove them from membership, right? Something like a hard and fast rule like that. Spurgeon responded this way, if a sheep has strayed, let us seek it. To disown it in a hurry is not the master's method. Ours is to be the labor and the care, for we are overseers of the flock of Christ to the end that all may be presented faultless before God. One month's absence from the house of God is, in some cases, a deadly sign of a profession renounced, while in others, a long absence is an affliction to be sympathized with and not a crime to be capitally punished. I know the lovers of rules are full of arguments, but houses and families under rigid rules are never happy places to live in. Its health and its disease cannot be legislated for like stone and iron. So he, he would go on to talk about a number of cases where the elders would go into looking into cases of non-attendance and actually discover uh, stories of hardship, of illness, you know, of marriages that are struggling, um, of other pastoral issues, which required care, not removal, right? Um, and so Spurgeon uh, encouraged his elders in that work. There were some cases, however, where non-attendance would turn out to be a case of unrepentant sin, right? As he says, a deadly sign of profession renounced. And as the elders pursue these cases with care, and in many occasions, uh, the member would persist in unrepentant sin, leading, uh, resulting in church discipline. Uh, the elders meeting minutes from September 12, 1887. Uh, a couple of elders give this report on a member. It writes this, We have fully investigated this case, and we are convinced that this member has been guilty of grossly immoral conduct, named to be removed accordingly, brothers, to see the wife. So I, I appreciate here, you know, church discipline, as painful as it is, uh, it's also part of our pastoral care, right, for those who are persisting in unrepentant, verifiable, grossly immoral conduct, as it says here, uh, part of our love for that person is to hold them accountable to their profession of faith. And if they walk away from that profession of faith, to lovingly call them back to the church, even through church discipline. Uh, I also appreciate here, the brothers here, note to see the wife, right? to make sure that the wife who is bearing with this terrible situation is also being cared for. Um, 
So there, there, even as you engage in church discipline, there's, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to care for the hurting people around that person. So as, as I said earlier, conclusion, uh, the benefits of plurality of elders are, are of all kinds. Um, and yet the, the, the wonderful thing is that it, it makes sure that the ministry of the church is not just riding on one person, but that work is distributed among many qualified men. Uh, one of the signs that Spurgeon's ministry there at the Metab was healthy, I think, is that when he was often sick and had to be away for months at a time, um, the work carried on kind of without missing a beat. Uh, membership would continue to grow. People would continue to come. Uh, his elders and deacons would often write to him saying, hey, take your time in, in recovering your health. Don't rush back before you're ready to come back. Um, one time, an elder wrote to him a letter saying this, your long affliction and your tedious banishment have already borne some peaceable fruits. The stable character of your work has been proved. Had the church been built on the basis of your popularity as a preacher, the congregation would not have been so well kept up in your absence. But so far from that being the case, the prayer meetings, the weekly communion services are all well attended. Even when the severe weather, had you been here, would have been sufficient to account for some deficiencies. Right? So, so the health and growth of the church during Spurgeon's absence was evidence that the church was not built on him, but on the ministry of the word. And that ministry of the word was carried on by Spurgeon, yes, but by all his elders alongside him. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we pray that our churches would uh, be characterized by, by godly, faithful pastors. Uh, Lord, that you would give good gifts to your churches. Uh, and so the, the ministry of the gospel would, would flourish. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.